0: Hey, it's Alice. Just a quick reminder before we get started that the views you're going to hear on the show today belong to Jim, me, and our guests. They don't reflect the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay, here's the show.
1: And if you go to war, you go in with
2: overwhelming military force. We have over 100,000 transgender veterans.
1: Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me.
0: Welcome to Thank You for Your Service, a conversation with practitioners, scholars, artists, and you about the relationship between the military and civilians. I'm Alice Friend. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a visiting research professor at the U.S. Army War College. I worked at the Pentagon as a civilian in the Office of the Secretary of Defense.
1: And I'm Jim Golby. I served as an Army officer for 20 years. Now I'm a senior fellow at the Clement Center at the University of Texas, Austin. On this podcast, we consider the civilian and military perspectives on war, government, politics, and service.
0: Today on the show, we're tackling a really big and really important and really sensitive topic.
1: Politization. Po- politic- Politi-
0: politis- politicization.
1: Politicization.
0: The military and politics.
1: Partisan politics, electoral politics, but also just politics.
0: Listeners, Jim was the person who first pointed out to me that there is a very important difference between politics and partisanship.
1: Today, we'll focus primarily on the military side of that relationship. We'll talk about retired and active duty officers making public statements about political topics. We'll think about military family members getting involved in policy advocacy. And we'll talk about what partisan polarization means for the U.S. military.
0: We'll get into the recent events that have more Americans than ever talking about the military's role in national politics.
1: This time on Thank You for Your Service.
0: When Jim and I took on this show, we decided that we didn't want it to be too reactive to the news cycle. But to be honest, we had no idea the news cycle was going to be so relevant to the show.
2: The former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, retired Admiral Mike Mullen for his first televised interview since speaking out on this controversy. The
1: option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. A lot of the news about the U.S. military in recent months has been interpreted in the context of partisan politics. It's an election year, so everything is more partisan. But a lot of it is the culmination of decades of creeping politicization of the military.
0: Some people focus on retired general and flag officers endorsing political candidates. That trend started back in 1988, and hit an alarming amplitude during the 2016 presidential election.
2: I stand with you tonight, a retired four-star general of the United States Marine Corps. And I am joined by my fellow generals and admirals. We stand before you tonight to endorse Hillary Clinton for the president of the United States of America.
0: I stand with you as a citizen, a veteran,
2: a patriot, but more important, as an American, to tell you that the destructive pattern of putting the interests of other nations ahead of our own will end when Donald Trump is president.
0: In the late 1990s, the Triangle Institute for Security Studies conducted a bunch of surveys of active-duty military personnel and found that a profound shift had happened, not just among retired officers. More senior military officers were affiliating with a political party rather than registering as independent. And nearly two-thirds of those officers affiliated with the Republican Party, up from only one-third in the 1970s.
1: Despite these changes in the partisan composition of the officer corps, civil-military conflict has occurred in Democratic and Republican administrations alike. Both the George W. Bush and Obama administrations struggled with instances of public military opposition to their policies.
0: Some of these conflicts are partisan. They're about getting power through a political party. Some of them are simply political, in the sense that they are over a matter of public policy.
1: The U.S. military is a professional institution, and it should remain nonpartisan. But it cannot help but be involved in politics. For one thing, senior officers have to advise civilian leaders on strategy, on policy, on budgets. Those things are fundamentally political.
0: But in principle, the military should and must avoid partisanship. All civilians must trust that the military will act in the interests of the nation, not in the interests of one domestic faction.
1: But pulling that
2: off is getting harder and harder. My entry into the uh, into the Marine Corps came in the 60s.
0: McCubbin Thomas Owens, or Mac, is a civil-military relations scholar and a U.S. Marine Corps veteran. In one of his most recent pieces for the National Review, he argued that both active-duty and senior retired military officers should be very hesitant to make public comments about the president's policy choices.
2: We forget sometimes that the idea of a nonpartisan professional military service is is relatively new. It really emerges in the latter part of the 19th century. With progressivism and so forth. I mean, before that, you know, you had uh, uh, you you had officers who didn't hesitate to uh, to make partisan statements. As recently as 1920, you had uh, General Leonard Wood, who was still on active duty, ran for the Republican nomination in uniform. He was at that point he'd been formerly the chief of staff of the army, but at that point he was a, still a district commander. Uh, so I mean, it's been around for a long time. My point is that we got rid of it for a reason. And I, I think that to the extent we can, we need to uh, just continue to admonish officers of all ranks to be a little careful. And again, the worst thing that I think that could happen to the United States military is for it to be portrayed as just you know another interest group. Another interest group, a, a partisan prize that the two parties can, can argue over. You know, the military continues to be one of the most respected institutions in American society. And there's no faster way to further that away than to uh, you know, engage in, in petty partisan politicking. Dick Cohn put it best one time when he was talking about retired officers. He says, yes, they are citizens and they have the right uh, to speak out, but they're also like the cardinals of the Catholic Church. When a retired officer speaks out, People will perceive that he's speaking not only for himself as a citizen, but for the military uh, at at large. And, uh, you know, I mean, they, they have to be careful.
1: Speaking out is something more and more Americans are comfortable with the military doing. There were people who thought that General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should resign over the use of National Guard personnel during the Black Lives Matter protests. That use of force was partisan, people argued. Milley should resign to make it clear the U.S. military won't tolerate being used in a partisan manner. We asked Mac about that, and he pointed out that politics can cut both ways.
2: I can't think of a more political statement than resignation. If General Milley were to have decided that he's going to resign over that whole sort of thing, that in itself would have been just an explosive political event. That, uh, you know, far more than just uh, biting his time and biting his tongue, perhaps.
0: Some people argue that there are times when it's actually healthy for members of the military to take a stand in the midst of political controversy.
3: I think Trump has gone to great lengths to wrap himself in the military. I think the retired officers that complain about that, um, I think that is dissent. And I think that that is dissent that is trying to sort of protect the integrity of military forces. I'm guessing that we're going to see more of that.
1: Alice and I talked to Deborah Avant back in June. Dr. Avant is a senior scholar of civil-military relations and security studies. Today, she runs the C-Center for International Security and Development at the University of Denver.
0: Debbie came on the show because I commented on Twitter on a piece she'd written with Kara New for the Political Violence at a Glance website. That piece is titled, Military Dissent Could Curb Democratic Backsliding in the U.S., she and New shared findings that, in other countries, when the military dissents from the government, it can help prevent authoritarianism.
1: But don't let the title make you think their recommendations are all about the military. Dr. Avant was careful to tell us that even though military voices might be able to buttress democracy, civilians still need to be in the lead.
3: That- Part of the political violence at a glance piece is really looking at, you know, I was pulling from my fabulous dissertation student, Kara New's dissertation on, you know, really looking at when military dissent in the wake of protests um, leads those protests to actually be successful. And one of the important things for a democratization process is having civilians remain in the center. Of course, knowing which civilians to follow is tricky.
0: In Avant and news telling, military officers have to make a judgment call about which domestic group is really representing the country and which groups are being
3: parochial. Military leaders can respond to civilian voices that are voicing collective concerns and resist those that are couched more narrowly in individual or you know, subgroup concerns, looking just at white Americans, for instance, or rural Americans.
0: So do you think, for example, the responses from all the chiefs, I think, at this point to the protests across the country against uh, racial injustice and police brutality, is that an example of the military responding to those civilian social concerns
3: appropriately? Right. That was part of what motivated the post for me is I looked at the content of what they were saying and they were promoting A set of norms that i think most people in the country in fact you know close to 80 percent right thinks that racial injustice is something that we ought to be focused on as a country and so when i see military leaders upholding really commonly held norms and then trying to resist efforts to to pull them into more narrow concerns i think that that that's actually a very productive way for the military to engage, particularly in a very difficult environment.
1: This involves the military making judgments about the public. But what about how the public sees the military? Evidence shows that public opinion about the military is getting more and more polarized along partisan lines.
4: For years now, various polling firms have asked, how confident are you? How much trust? How much respect do you have in different institutions in American society? And famously, the military comes out at the top of those surveys.
0: This is Dr. David Burbach, a professor of national security affairs at the Naval War College. He has published his research on the partisan dimensions of confidence in the U.S. military over time
4: confidence among Republicans has really skyrocketed over the years, while it's remained somewhat, you know, it's remained strong, but lower among Democrats. And we also see an effect where people trust the military if they're the president, the commander-in-chief is of their own party. If you t- approved of President Bush's job performance, you also said you were confident in the military. If you did not approve of President Bush's performance, you didn't feel confident in the military. Suddenly, when Obama takes office in 2009, confidence among Republicans declines and it goes up among Democrats. Same thing happens when Donald Trump comes into office. Confidence among Democrats goes down, confidence among Republicans goes way up.
1: David, as you look at the different controversies and conflicts that we've been seeing over the last few months, whether it's the response to COVID and the military's role in it, whether it's the president talking about potentially invoking the Insurrection Act, What does your research suggest about how that is going to change the military's relationship with society and how the public is going to view the military? It's a good
4: question. It's just too recent to have uh, at least data that that I can find that's broken down on a partisan basis. But I think we will probably see the partisan split exacerbated if the president were to have, say, made heavier use of troops in D.C. or, you know, if they were to send actual military units out in Portland, Chicago, other cities that are being talked about. I suspect because Democrats tend to be very unsympathetic to that policy goal and that that move by the president, I think that would probably hurt confidence among Democrats. I'm not so sure that would happen among Republicans, who I think are are more likely to back the president.
0: All of this makes it really challenging for military personnel to keep their institution nonpartisan. I asked Dr. Burbach what he thinks people in uniform can do to maintain partisan neutrality. And much like Dr. Avant, he keyed in on what civilians can and should be doing.
4: Part of it is senior defense political officials have got to be willing to run some interference and provide some space for the uniformed military. That's basically the most important job for the top political leadership at DOD is to, you know, stand up for those principles and, you know, be, be willing to take the heat, be willing to lose your job if necessary. I wish I had a better answer to this question, but, you know, if your civilian masters are trying to force you into a political position, it's, you know, saying no to that is itself political. So it's, it's a very difficult
1: situation. Things are so difficult right now that a lot of people in and out of uniform are simply running the other way. And both civilian and military leaders at the Pentagon have come under fire during the Trump administration for a dearth of press conferences and decreased transparency. But Alice and I talked to someone who still sees the virtue of engaging in politics, and she thinks she's in a unique position to bridge these divides, and she's willing to navigate sensitivities among military communities to get more people involved.
5: The biggest area of focus that we've tried to hone in on at Secure Families Initiative is to explain how foreign policy decisions that are kind of made in D.C. affect our military's ops tempo. And that ops tempo directly impacts our lifestyles, the military families that are charged with carrying out the mission.
0: Sarah Strider is the executive director of a nonprofit she founded, the Secure Families Initiative. Their mission is to elevate military spouses and family members as uniquely qualified advocates
5: and organizers on matters of foreign policy. Military spouses have this unique privilege where we can bridge the gap between the active duty service experience with the freedom and flexibility to speak up about it. Right. So DOD regulations limit the amount of political speech, especially that active duty service members are allowed to have, as with any other federal government employee. Those rules, however, do not apply to a spouse or family member. And so we have this platform, this ability to relay those experiences and tell those stories that otherwise would go untold.
1: SFI is nonpartisan but they're also affiliated with a 501C4 organization that endorses political candidates.
0: Jim and I had warned Sarah we had some hard questions for her. We both strongly agree that military families have every right to organize and get involved in politics, but we weren't sure how Sarah's organization could draw the line between the political views of military families and the military itself. Can you talk a bit about... Getting involved in politics, but in a nonpartisan way, particularly in this environment, it's very, very hard now to have any substantive opinion at all that isn't politicized in a partisan way. So how do you guys walk that line?
5: Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, we try to be as upfront about the values that we hope to promote and the outcomes that we want to see in terms of U.S. foreign policy And we welcome champions of those values and outcomes from wherever they come, no matter their political persuasion. So here's one great example. There's a lot of talk about vote by mail right now, because with the coronavirus, we want to make sure the ballot box can be accessible to folks without having to make a trade-off for their health and safety. And voting by mail is something that a lot of military families have been doing for decades. And so it's a system that I think that we have a unique perspective on sharing our experience about vote by mail and how it's worked, how it's made us able to participate in civic engagement, even as we've been stationed abroad. But that itself is an issue that right now is becoming really politicized, because kind of the partisan hackles are elevating. And so I don't know that I have a secret formula for how to avoid politicization, other than doing your best to be clear and upfront,
1: I guess the question I would ask is, do you ever have concerns that your political activity will reflect negatively on your spouse? Um, Is that something that you see that is common among other spouses? Because you you did sort of note that that's a concern that as people get higher in rank, they actually worry that their own activity will reflect on their spouse. Could you talk about that a little bit?
5: It's one of the most common concerns that we hear from folks who are debating about how involved they want to be in their lives. It's up to each military family member to decide for themselves what degree of political involvement that they feel most comfortable with. And that might change for someone depending on where they're stationed, whether they have some sort of leadership role or what's going on in the world. And that's okay. I realize that What makes sense for me uh, as an enlisted wife over here, working in politics, living in D.C., may not make sense for every single other person. Our goal at SFI is simply to make sure that when a military family member makes that decision, that it's made out of information, not fear. Our lives are directly impacted and by the decisions that are made, and we deserve a voice in the decision-making process. Uh, as any other stakeholder or constituency that, where decisions affect them, they should have a seat at the table.
0: The answer I've settled on to the question of how members of the military can try to maintain the nonpartisan ethos of their services is for them to just say it, to just say, we cannot be partisan kind of like what General Milley did.
1: We who wear the cloth of our nation come from the people of our nation. And we must hold dear the principle of an apolitical military that is so deeply rooted in the very essence of our republic. And this is not easy. It takes time and work and effort, but it may be the most important thing each and every one of us does every single day. But again, we have to keep in mind... The military can't avoid politics, even in the best of times. It's actually not healthy for them to do so because ignorance of politics not only keeps them from doing their jobs well, but it can also mean they don't realize when they are getting involved in partisan activity.
0: And civilians, you have a major role to play here. We can't have a nonpartisan military if you treat military personnel like partisan allies.
1: Well, that's our show for today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We'd love to hear from our listeners. Follow us on Twitter. We're at TYFYS underscore podcast.
1: And send us an email telling us what you think of the show and what else you'd like us to cover. Our address is tyfyspodcast at gmail.com. Polite notes only, please.
0: Thanks for joining us. See you next time.